everybody. We are here today with Natasha Leonard of The Intercept and Libby and Sam from the Richard Hunsinger Defense Committee. And we'll be talking about some really serious political oppression that's going on and what we can do to support the people who are being targeted by the state. And uh, I guess we'll start off with the, the most serious recent case of a anti-state dissident being imprisoned by the Brandon regime and what we're going to do to support our comrade Trump. What, what do you guys think? Um, well, I saw a tweet that really inspired me uh, that was like, I'm going to go meet my future spouse at the Trump indictment. So, <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do. Um, no, I'm, uh, I'd have to get divorced again for that to work. Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, you know, obviously all solidarity with with Comrade Trump and his loyal followers. The FBI may have dropped the Black Identity Extremism label, but don't believe for a second that they're not investigating ideologies. They're, they have an operation to take down uh, old white man messiahs, uh-huh. which is what they're doing now. They're targeting the MAGA movement. They need to start a MAGA Black Cross, raise some money for his commissary. <laughs> yeah, I think the most important thing I'm excited about is the graphic design for T-shirts that will come out of this. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they whip up, like Trump in heaven, Trump behind bars, the airbrush like <laughs> innovators that we're going to see, I think will be really important for art. There's already so much good stuff in that vein out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm excited for the bumper stickers yeah just the general aesthetics of it i think that's a good point it's gonna be it's gonna be really really beautiful <laughs> that one conservative muralist is gonna do uh a picture of him and in, in like orange prison garb um all right so <laughs> so what yeah let's let's get serious for real uh we're talking about um dozens of domestic terrorism charges that just happened in uh atlanta um, they are against the forest defenders. Um, we had an episode about this a few weeks ago. I think all of our listeners probably know a little bit about this. Um, but there was this video that I think some of us saw of uh, some, like, masked uh, creatures. They might have been people. They might have been Ewoks. I don't know. Overrunning this construction site that I think was linked to the Cop City project. Um, and set, appear they appear to have set it on fire. And then later in the day, 23 people were charged with domestic terrorism. Um, And I think the media, some media reported and people just assumed that it was the same people. But Natasha, you looked into the indictments against them and you didn't find much evidence that it was the same people at all. So, So what did you find in those indictments? Yeah, so this was from looking at the um, arrest uh, arrest warrants um, and the alleged claims of probable cause for these arrests. But it was also talking to comrades on the ground in Atlanta who were uh, present that day. Um, so basically, as you noted, there was caught on on camera um, an act of uh, you know group. Uh, direct action against the construction of Cop City. So we're talking property damage here. We're talking vandalism. Um, and, you know, uh, might might have been a little fiery. And, and it was, I think, a really important act to really stop Cop City being built. Uh, what a direct way to do it, to make the building impossible by intervening with the um, actual construction materials. Um, but it was over pretty quickly. Obviously, no humans or animals hurt. So, you know, even even if and it doesn't seem to be the case at all that the police have any reason to believe this, even if uh, one of the people who was involved with that act of vandalism were to have been caught up in in the arrests. And again, no evidence that there's any uh, correlation between the arrestees and uh, the people that carried out the vandalism. Uh, We're talking domestic terror charges. Um, which are, um, you know, excessive to the max. But uh, in terms of the validity of the targeting of the arrestees, um, <laughs> ethics aside, uh, yeah, so this the uh, vandalism took place about a mile away from where the arrests happened uh, and about uh, over an hour after the uh, alleged vandalism event. Uh, what was also happening on this exact same day was the second day of one of the Forest Defenders' weeks of action, which are semi-regular, week-long 
events or numerous events wherein the the regular on the ground forest defenders uh, make a point of publicizing the struggle that they've been in for nearly two years now, uh, trying to invite people from all around the country to come to the forest, see the forest, um, engage with the locals on the ground, learn about the struggle, learn about the violence that Cop City would constitute, um, learn about, you know, indigenous knowledge practices around the forest um, and engage in that way. So all kinds of diversity of tactics, including, you know, family friendly uh, arts and crafts and uh, particularly relevant to uh, the day of these arrests was um, the fact that there was a music festival. So this was on a Sunday of the week of action and there was an all day music festival. The police did not storm uh, the group of people who uh, were captured on film uh, setting fire to construction materials. Quite the opposite. The police, they ran away. They ran away. And uh, and that was funny. Um, the police stormed the music festival, which had, uh, you know, I think at a certain point, 400 people. And at the time of the raid, um, 100 people enjoying the day, milling around, enjoying the forest. Again, about a mile away from where these... Um, these direct actions took place so the police storm um and according to the arrest warrants not even just according to uh you know comrades first-hand reports the arrest warrants themselves note that the probable cause that uh the police want to use as grounds for these arrests include things like the uh arrestee had mud on their shoes Keep in mind, we're talking about people who have been in a forest, many of whom are camping in the forest um, and had been dancing in a festival in the forest and there had been rain not that long before. Um, also, the fact that people had the uh, legal support phone number written on their arms. Anyone who's been in a mass protest, however placid the mass protest, will have probably had the experience of writing uh, the National Lawyers Guild or uh, similar um, phone number and that arm um, in case of in case of emergency, for example, uh, a multi-agency raid on a music festival. Um, so you know, really, really baseless, groundless arrests. Um, and now, oh, and including the arrest uh, of someone who was indeed there and had demarcated themselves with a hat as a legal observer. Um, so that person is also now facing these uh, really groundless, baseless charges. Um, of domestic terror under the state's domestic terror statute. Um, do I think the charges will hold up? Um, you know, touch wood, absolutely not. Um, I think it's pretty clear based on how very groundless the claims seem to be and how very um, indiscriminate the arrests appeared to be that these are malicious prosecutions, um, you know, that the sort of prosecutions like we saw with J20 and also throughout movements like Standing Rock, uh, wherein law enforcement and prosecutors are quite happy to throw uh, incredibly hefty charges at um, considerable swathes of a movement to drain resources and chill. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a, even if we want to play by the, the kind of logics that uh, law enforcement and prosecutors claim to be interested in, um, it's wildly unconstitutional and... Um, you know, uh, highly unlikely to actually be successful in court, but I, I don't think that's the point of it. Yeah, I mean, if they had mud on their shoes inside, like if they walked into someone's house with mud on their shoes, yeah, okay, you're a terrorist, but if you're outside, that's, you know, that's no crime. Um, exactly, like, look, no one stood with muddy shoes on a lovely Persian rug, okay? Like, okay, we're not talking we talk, terrorism here. We can talk more about the uh, the government's obsession with, defendant's shoes oh yeah um, in the context of our friend's case yeah they're, they're sneaker hats they love to see what people are uh yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> love to check out people's drip um so yeah we, we, you know, we like to keep it light here with some jokes but they're in jail right now right this is like a really bad yeah, situation so, so you funny 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 they're in jail yeah uh for um 22 of the 23 people facing charges were denied bond um, the only person that was not denied bond was um, the the attorney who's um, embarred in the state of Georgia. So, um, you know, the, the the judge at the bond hearing did grant him that 
that grand favor of not not being held um in prison uh without bond um interestingly enough too although we don't know if there are warrants out for these people there were actually 34 people arrested that day in this sweep but the people that were um released on the day without charges so far were all people that had a uh, georgia local uh identification so it did look like, and actually one of the attorneys at the um, bond hearing, one of the defense attorneys noted that it looked like um, law enforcement that day had made a sort of division between uh, locals and out-of-towners. Uh, the lawyer made the the, the good point that, um, you know, uh, rights to association do not stop at the border. Um, but it did very much look like, uh, at least in in a certain way, uh, that that these arrests were aligning with a narrative that we've been hearing for a long time from um, cop city supporters, local politicians, law enforcement uh, itself, that any of these uh, protests, especially if they become more militant and more um, forceful, are the work of that old canard um, outside agitators, which is incredibly ironic because um, cop city is outside agitators because it's funded by multinational corporations like Bank of America and Coca-Cola. And uh, the intention of it is to train police from uh, municipalities uh, and states outside of Georgia. So, um, you know, uh, obviously outside agitator myths have a long and from around the world. history, but it's also sort of ironic in this case too. And this is during a week of action when the whole idea was to bring people from out of town into the struggle because, you know, cop cities per se are a violence to us all and uh, the decimation of crucial forest land uh, is a risk beyond just the locality it will most immediately affect. And just to remind listeners, that is a uh, majority black neighborhood, uh, also uh, one of Atlanta's uh, really not very well off neighborhoods. So um, environmental racism, uh, carceral violence, uh, political uh politicized arrests it's it's all it's all happening in atlanta in the worst of ways but also because it's been happening in atlanta i believe in the best of ways because the movement has been so awesome and resilient and nimble um so i i don't think it's gonna crush crush stop cop city yeah uh i hope not and it just seems like the more they repress it the more people are coming out and the more different kinds of people are coming out to support it so yeah i mean there was a whole bunch of you know, given that, and it's and as a movement, it's been really good at, at um, coalition building yeah. and um, reaching across sort of political tactics and tendencies, which is, I think, impressive. I think that's why it's had its staying power in many ways. Um, but you know, there were like faith leaders speaking out against these arrests, um, and you know, without having, without kind of going out their way to condemn the direct action, property damage, and stuff that happened earlier that day. That outside agitator bit, I think, has been effective, if for no one else, for the magistrate judge who um, was convinced to hold people without bail, maybe just because there was a magistrate judge and like they don't really ever see these these charges and the seriousness of them um, had held a lot of sway. But I, what they said, what the judge said was that... Um, they're a flight risk because they're from out of town. And that was even for people who live somewhere else in Georgia, just like not in Atlanta. Um, and so their charges were, so we're Libby and Sam, we're going to talk about um, Richard's charges, which was uh, included a terrorism enhancement. And these charges were Georgia's domestic terrorism law. So these are two totally different things. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Atlanta charges are specifically under a state statute, which is in and of, it, of itself, like as as a piece of legislation, incredibly loose and sort of open for misuse. But to be honest, all terror statutes are, be they federal or state based, it's it's in their nature as as um, you know ideological tools. Right. I, I remember seeing an article in the New York Times. I think it was. Or like last year about how it was it was specifically about Nazis, like not like um who you, you might call them Nazi terrorists, although like we'll we'll talk a little bit about if if we should even be using that word at all. Uh but you know, like 
people who I idolized Dylan Roof and James Fields and want to do what they did. And the article was like, well, we can't charge these people. These are these are like terrorists, but we can't charge them as as terrorists because it's hard to prove an ideological motive for a crime or whatever. Um, and meanwhile, like, uh, you know, leftists and anarchists and revolutionaries have been uh, getting these terrorism charges thrown at them for for years, you know, uh, since yeah, as far as I can remember, the Green Scare. In the 2000s, yeah. which was targeted at uh, environmentalists and animal rights activists. Um, there was a RICO case against uh, the Shack 7, who were anti-vivisection activists. And, Natasha, you wrote about just recently uh, Jessica Resniak, who is a, a pipeline defender, who got this um, this uh, terrorism enhancement. And she, she was convicted of it. And uh, in your article, you imply that a big part of that was, uh, you know, you, you, you put it um, a little bit more subtly than this, but it sounds like, Jeff Sessions demanded this terrorism charge and Jeff Sessions happens to get a lot of money from the oil companies that benefit from these pipelines. Right. No, it was very much like if you like some sort of cartoonish version of, um, you know, state corporate nexus at play. Like you don't usually see it so um, kind of blatantly and embarrassingly. Uh, but yeah, so basically uh, I think it's Jessica Rednicek. Um, although I'm bad at pronouncing things and I have a silly voice anyway. Um, but yes, she was um, charged uh, and convicted with a terrorist enhancement. And then uh, her attorneys attempted to appeal that, specifically in the enhancement. And um, a panel of three all Trump appointed judges uh, upheld the enhancement. And uh, what was specifically uh, sort of you know, it's hard to ever be outraged by anything and sort of a, a sign of not paying attention if you are. But I was, um, you know, uh, bemused unpleasantly by the fact that in their ruling, they said it would be that it was, in fact, harmless to include the terror and terrorist enhancement uh, in her conviction, um, which, of course, it's not. It, it's of, uh, like of... Um, you know, material consequences and precedent setting or precedent can or standards upholding in an uncomfortable way to uh, name the sort of act that Jessica Resnicek took again, property damage against corporate property as the work of a terrorist. And what is terrorism? Do you know it means enemy of the state? And that's why it's so regularly used against uh, anti-capitalists, anti-fascists, um, and uh, environmentalists because of, yeah, state interest in uh, corporate interest and capital's compulsions. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a similar we're, we're looking at a similar situation, uh, just with a different charging body uh, and, um, you know, federal as opposed to uh, state based, uh, but the same ideology at play, as was very much um, sort of mastered in many ways during the Green Scare when uh, specifically the Department of Homeland Security called environmental and animal activists who had never, um, in all their direct actions and freeing of animals and property damage, which, you know, they were pretty active in and, and, and had a lot of successes, um, did never hurt a human being or an animal. Um, and they were labeled as the... Uh, most, the, the greatest, the highest domestic terror threat um by homeland security uh, at the height of the green stick green scare so in like the late 90s yeah right even uh even the shack 7 the stop hunting in animal cruelty uh seven defendants from that were indicted under the animal enterprise terrorism act which again you know it's a, a corporations lobbied for this terrorism label against their opponents some of them committed direct action but the Shack Seven were uh, like a. It was like a. They ran a website that like published information on the campaign against Shack, and w uh, because they were able to use a, a, a RICO indictment, they got people who, as far as I could tell, were just publishing the website uh, years mm -hmm. in prison. Um, but let's move on to Richard's case, um, since we're on the the subject of like how terrorism is variously used uh, to. Uh, to, to target the the left and activists and revolutionaries. Um, yeah, so Richard Hunsinger is a, a friend of the show. Some of the older listeners might remember him from the Line Goes Down series. Um, let, let's let hear the background on this case and what led to these charges. 
Yeah, so um, Richard is an Atlanta anti-gentrification activist and organizer, and he was arrested in 2020 um, for protesting during the George Floyd uprising. And he um, eventually ended up pleading guilty to a couple of things. Uh, One of them was uh, destruction of government property. One of them uh, was um, assault, obstruction, or impeding a federal officer. And Sam, what was the third charge? There's so many. I I just can't keep track. The the uh, he was charged um, with arson as well, but that was he did not plead guilty to arson. Uh, yeah, that carries a five year mandatory minimum, um, and he didn't get five years which is great. He got, he got a good deal less than that. Um, yeah. yeah, he pleaded to the first two charges that Libby mentioned, the depredation of government property and the assaulting or resisting or impeding or obstructing <laughs> certain officers. Yeah, and so this um, was... And that took, like, two, that process took a little over two years. He was arrested in November, um, right before his birthday uh, of 2020. Um, which was a few months after the incident um, that the charges are related to, which was the end of June. Um, And he spent a month in jail. um, And then, uh, as will hopefully happen um, in a couple days with the forest offenders, Um, he got before a real judge, not a magistrate judge, um, and got bonded out, um, and then was basically on house arrest for a period of two years. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's going to jail at the end of March, at the end of this month. And he he spent those two years writing a lot about Moby Dick. I'll, I'll put some of those, uh, his sub stack in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, doing a lot of historiography about primitive accumulation and and uh, race and class, and uh, I guess that's all I'll say because I um, am too much of a dilettante and idiot. Uh-huh. To, I mean, he's a brilliant writer, and he, he's using his uh, his time well, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have him on the show again. Um, but can we? Can you say uh, like what the incident? You said the incident, and I'm sure our listeners just need to know a little bit more about what the uh the allegation was or like what the um the thing was that he was thought to to have been near when he obstructed or impeded something totally um and this i think just kind of goes to show you how like arbitrary the criminal punishment system is so richard like when he pled guilty he pled guilty to throwing a molotov cocktail into an ice building um it didn't go off there was no fire that was started he threw uh, this into the window. So um, that's your destruction of government property, which I think is like pretty intuitive. But the um, assault or resisting or impeding or obstructing a federal officer comes from the fact that this is a very large building. And there was a security guard for the building who was like the length of a football field away. Um, so because Richard threw this into the building, uh, the government's interpretation and argument is that that counts as um, an assault on an officer because the officer was in the building. Um, so it's very arbitrary and uh, frustrating. And so you um, were part of the Richard Hunsinger Defense Committee uh, that started, I imagine, around when uh, when the arrest or when the charges came down. Um, so what yeah what, what does it mean to be on a defense committee and like how did you start uh you know um like what kind of actions were you doing how did it all begin yeah i think um a lot of it came out of and i know this is similar to people who are supporting forest defenders and um other political prisoners elsewhere but a lot of it just started out with this is our friend somebody that we've known for a really long time that we love um and he's just been violently taken away from us by the state Um, So a lot of it was like very initially like stress and fear and like, frankly, terror for our friend being arrested. 
Um, and we were just trying to figure out what can we do to help him get out. And I think a really pivotal turning point for us was going from viewing ourselves as just like his supporters and his friends to viewing ourselves in like this lineage of defense committees throughout time um, and understanding that we have power and we have agency in this movement against state repression and we can be active participants so we can, you know, do paralegal support for the lawyer. We can, you know, make sure that everybody in the community knows their rights and knows not to talk to police if they knock on their doors, things like that were really important for us. Um, and I know Sam can talk a little bit more about the research that we did, um, which we spent a lot of time doing. Sure. I mean, as far as brass tacks, we also just did um, like basic jail support and court support stuff, um, getting his friends and colleagues and family members to write character witness letters uh, for his bond hearings um, and getting people to show up for court, uh, organizing um, commissary, like sending him money, sending him books and stuff like that. Um, making sure that people could communicate him with him for that brief period he was in jail. Um, but then, yeah, we did end up working with his lawyer um, on some some legal research to prepare for his sentencing. Um, his judge was particularly interested in uh, the sentences of the January 6th uh, insurrectionists. I guess, um, and was curious about whether there was a sentencing disparity for those cases and the government's uh, request for his period of incarceration. Um, and his lawyer, who rocks, um, had anticipated that, that that might come into play, that the sentences of the capital breachers and the sentences of the um, the racial justice protesters who were uh, arrested for incidents in 2020 might be different. Um, and th that difference might uh, be important when it came to his sentencing um, and arguing for len leniency before this judge. Um, so we, we read a bunch of uh, transcripts of sentencing hearings Libby mostly read a bunch of transcripts of sentencing hearings. Um, and we did some sort of summary statistics on uh, the sentences of the capital breachers and of the racial justice protesters um, as distinct groups um, who, who don't really, can't really be compared to one another um, for one thing, because the charges are mostly really different. Um, and um, so talking about a disparity doesn't really make a lot of sense, but, uh, our main question was whether anybody else was getting this terrorism enhancement, um, or, or whether the government was even seeking the terrorism enhancement in other cases, because that's what they did with Richard. Um, they, uh, pursued this, this sentencing enhancement, which is, um, it just tax on more prison time, basically, at least to the guidelines. Um, and there's a list of cases, uh, or sorry, a list of offenses that it applies to, or it can apply to. Um, there's like 57 of them, I believe. Um, and then there's a note at the end of that section of the guidelines manual that says, or if it's some other offense that really seems like terrorism, <laughs> that too, basically. Um, and so that, that note was um, used uh, or, or invoked in some language in the plea agreements of a lot of the January 6th capital breach uh, defendants, where the government was basically like, we might ask for the terrorism enhancement for these guys because this was terrorism. Um, and then they did it, which is, that's what we found. <laughs> they asked for a terrorism enhancement for uh, one guy um, when it, it actually came to the sentencing hearings. Um, and it was basically like a, a trial 
pun punishment for going to trial and for not taking the plea agreement. Um, and they, uh, they asked for it for two guys from the uh, protests in the summer of 2020. And those uh, happened to not be racial justice protesters really, but rather Boogaloo boys who um, were entrapped by FBI informants um, for uh, their intention to sell arms to Hamas. Um, so uh, that they didn't, um, they didn't really get that terrorism enhancement either. Um, the one guy from January 6th uh, didn't get it because there was, it would have created a disparity in sentences with uh, his comrades. And the Boogaloo boys, um, they, it, it doesn't really matter whether it was applied and, and their sentencing hearing transcripts don't make it clear whether the enhancement was applied for them, but uh, the judge was so lenient in their sentencing because they cooperated extensively with the government mm. um, that it doesn't really matter. Um, I'm shocked that the Boogaloo boys would cooperate with the government like that. I thought they, I thought they hated the government, but what a, yeah, they what said a, they, they really didn't like the government. Also, yeah. what happened to the Boogaloo boys, guys? Like, I just think they weren't they... serious. They were just kidding. It was just a online like club to to like fantasize. It, it was a bit. Still get together and have their little, you know, militia best friends club. Like, what are they doing on the weekend now? <laughs> Well, I think they turned in all of their friends. So I think they're, they're all yeah, in prison. Some of them are in prison. Um, I guess the problem with being like an online social club is it's really easy to be entrapped by FBI agents to sell ghost guns to Hamas, um, is what I learned from that case. Now, look, like some of them are for real. You know, there, there are stories of like some Boogaloo, Boogaloo boys doing some things um, during the uprising in 2020, but. There was like tens of thousands of them. There's like tons of Boogaloo groups and like Telegram channels, like chans and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had like maybe six or seven of them actually go and do something. You know, a lot of them were just like defending businesses, too. So, I, yeah, I just think that was like a, not a real thing. Uh, uh, and uh, similarly, like, you know, J6, like you could say like, oh, these people actually, they did fight their way in, but... Um, you know that they weren't actually Antifa provocateurs because they didn't get those terrorism enhancements. If they were, they would probably get the same uh, charges as Richard and the and the like the forest defenders. So that's how you know they're really they're real patriots. <laughs> they they proved their metal by not getting called terrorists by the government. Um, but yeah, I think you mentioned earlier that James Fields, who was the Charlottesville Unite the Right um, rally murderer. Um, with his car, uh, he didn't get a terror enhancement. Um, and Dylan Roof got a hate crime charge and uh, sentenced to death, but um, he didn't get a terror enhancement. So yeah, it does seem to just like mean something, be used to mean something very specific, but I think that's also why like it was very liberal, very liberal media move after J6 to be like, call them what they are. Right. Finally, call the far right what they are they're terrorists like you know and it is obviously true like i don't want to say that like like obviously they are they terrorize and uh aim at um terrorize terrorizing people that are most vulnerable to be terrorized um and obviously have been responsible for more uh extremist killings by a vast degree than any other um political persuasion or group in the last decades um, but like this kind of liberal desire to be like, no, but they're terrorists actually, um, just shows how the disconnect between, um, you know, allegiances that they have no, uh, interest in the fact that these sort of statutes, if they're, um, expanded, um, and given more and given, uh, give law enforcement and prosecutors, uh, more power that they'll be, uh, obviously used against the left and environmentalists. And actually, there's these bills I'm going to write about soon um, that have been proposed and are moving quite swiftly through uh, the legislature in Oregon, which is obviously a hotbed of um, far-right militia action and thus anti-fascist action, too, in response. 
um, they're trying to pass all these like militia laws and state domestic terror laws um, under the the framing and the claims of going after the far right. Um, like that's specifically mm. what they're proposing. Um, yeah, but wasn't the, the Georgia thing. domestic and terrorism like law been... also uh, it came after the the shooting at the um, like uh, I don't know massage parlor or something? Isn't that when that law came into effect or was proposed? There, there was like a, 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 a mass sure shooting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was more it's, recent. Um, yeah, at least nominally the intention was to um, deter mass shootings or, or to punish mass shooters uh, more severely. Yeah. But, the, but, well, the Georgia legislature has a history of like passing the most demonic laws designed to just completely silence the left and then like putting this little patina on it like they made it illegal to deface confederate statues and the justification was what if somebody defaced like a holocaust memorial you wouldn't like that would you and so it's way worse that they would say that (laughs) yeah no and they will like And it's like truly, and this was also because there were different cities that were trying to take down their Confederate monuments in Georgia. So it was like to to make sure at the state level they couldn't do that. Um, so now they have to like hide them in broom closets or something. Um, it's just really unhinged. Yeah, and likewise, the, the federal terrorism enhancement um, was, they came up with it right after the World Trade Center bombing in the early 90s. Um, and usually it gets applied to, I mean, historically it's, it's been used for bombings. Um, like somebody, uh, conspired to like blow up a parking garage with a bunch of C4. Um, and the, the, it's funny that you were, that you made that point, Natasha, about the like liberal, um, like dark Brandon, like desire to to see it applied to um, people who are basically trespassing, um, because the DOJ is on. At least they say that they were on board with that. Like in these plea agreements, they made that reservation for a reason. Um, and in some of the sentencing hearings, um, like we read transcripts where the prosecutor said we think that January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism, um, but we're not going to pursue this enhancement. Um, so there's, um, I, they made the conscious decision, I think, to not try, try and expand um, the use of this enhancement here. Um, but the DOJ or the Joint Terrorism Task Force or whoever was responsible um for giving orders to the prosecutors in Richard's case, made the conscious decision that they would try to expand its use here, um, or or that this is appropriate. This this applies, um, but I th- I think re- it's the former, <laughs> um, and and I don't know exactly why they or if they thought they could get away with it with him with his case. Because in in so many other um, Molotov cocktail or arson cases from uh, from the summer of 2020, we didn't see that effort. We didn't see the effort to expand the application of the terrorism enhancement. Yeah, that's um, weird. Yeah, it was really weird. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me was um, like the the government submits like a sentencing memo before the sentencing hearing um, where they just kind of like talk about their arguments. And so they obviously get to the terrorism enhancement part. And like our Richard's judge had made it clear that she like had like a high threshold for it or like didn't really understand why they were doing this. She seemed like a little bit frustrated with the government, honestly, for doing the terrorism enhancement. Um, And so their explanation for why they were seeking it was that Richard didn't like the government. And so that meant that his actions constituted terrorism. And then they were also like citing um, that he like that he had taken a video of some graffiti on the ice building that had a hammer and sickle. And they were like, and this is the international symbol for communism. And it's like, this is all it takes to get a terrorism charge. 
charge. Like that's really, really bad. Um, it was like, honestly, like, well, was the Americans and he loves <laughs> communism. <laughs> it was, it was like laughable. Um, but then also like really scary when you think about how many things that could be applied to, uh, but also just kind of delusional. My, yeah, and then, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Um, my hunch about, you know, the, the way terrorism is going to be used in, in prosecution and in, you know, just political or media rhetoric in general is they're going to use it whenever there is a real threat against them. Like whenever this, the state uh, or, you know, in this case, I think it was like ICE and the police saying these people are like effectively organizing against us and we need to take the gloves off and do what we have to do, including uh, murdering someone in Atlanta and putting a bunch of people who absolutely do not deserve to be in jail, in jail with terrorism charges that's, you know, going to follow them for the rest of their lives. So I think terrorism, I don't know, you, I'll, I'll ask this to all of you because you've, you've researched like how it actually plays out in the media and in the legal system. Is it, does it just mean like we're, we want to stop treating these people as like political actors or civilians or like, people with a cause and start treating them as like enemy combatants basically um yeah i mean on the whole it like it 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 was especially interesting about like domestic terror charges is that aside from certain enhancements and these state-based statutes um there's no crime that's terrorism you don't commit a terrorism you commit something that's already considered a felony and then it is described through a charging body, through the application of a statute as terrorism. But it's not actually a separate act. That, and that's always been true of domestic terror. Um, it's uh, always rather been just like a descriptive tool and uh, that guides certain, you know, uh, investigative uh, agendas. And then, yeah, shapes how, how a case is framed and then of course that can lead to an extended sentence um but but it is always worth noting that like that there's you're not charged with the crime of terrorism you're charged with the crime of assaulting an officer with a terrorist enhancement and so what could that possibly mean all that is is we're describing you as an ideological enemy um how it's actually described within statutes doesn't say much different um it's not like it's sort of uh you know well well tucked away and, and carefully um, carefully hidden as an, as an intent, because um, you look at like the the Georgia one, for example, and it's literally like someone who does something um, within, you know, which would be within um, considered a felony anyway, um, but aimed towards uh, stopping the government or a corporation doing something. It's like all protest is aimed at stopping the government or changing the government or corporate corporate plans to do something so like the idea that you have an aim to change the course of government policy or change corporate action means that like even in statute it's sort of written in a way that that leads itself um to um being used against just effective protest or close to effective protest yeah yeah that's right and that's how the federal terrorism enhancement um, section of the sentencing guidelines manual is written to it's it's defined as um, one of these 57 offenses but when it is meant to influence the government or retaliate against government action we've got a little bit of time left so I wanted to just uh, finish up with the uh, with the defense committee uh, and tell us some of your your lessons. If 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 you or or someone you know should happen to uh, receive these charges, which seems to be getting unfortunately more and more likely recently, yeah, what are some lessons you learned through the process? Yeah, I mean, you got an article about it, and I'll put that in the show notes, and so everyone can read that. But yeah, just just some lessons on uh, you know supporting someone, I guess, who's being charged, whether it's terrorism or not. Yeah, I think like yeah. the most important thing is to like like it sounds kind of corny, but like believe in yourself. Um, like the state is intentionally trying to scare you and scare like your friend's entire community. Um, they're trying to stop people from protesting. They're trying to stop dissent. So I think one, like believing in yourself as like somebody who can like fight back is really important. And also like taking on the work of defense committees. It's not just about like 
I mean, it's very, very important to be putting money on people's books, to be writing them letters when they're inside and they're detained. Like these are all really important, but it also needs to be taken to the next step. And I think that there is almost this fear of like, oh, well, I don't have any legal knowledge. So how could I support my friend? And it's like, by having the politics you have, having a commitment to solidarity, being like smart and creative, you can do a lot of really, really incredible work for your friend and you should do it. Um, so I would, the first one is do the work. <laughs> and then Sam, I know you had some stuff to add. Yeah, um, talking about how how terrorism is gonna be used in the future made me think, maybe reminded me that um, Richard, was investigated by a joint terrorism task force, um, which is uh, a an arm of the FBI. Basically, um, it's an interagency task force, actually, that, where the FBI cooperates with local police and with um, DHS sometimes, uh, ICE sometimes, um, and. Every major city has one of these, uh, a JTTF. Um, and um, their, uh, their existence in itself, I think like they have to justify it sometimes. And, and some of these local cops take it really seriously and, and um, like really want terrorism to happen, <laughs> really want to be able to identify things as terrorism so that they can prosecute them at a federal level. Um, so all that being said, um, they, they use informants, um, they use undercovers, um, and they investigate, uh, offenses that, um, it's sometimes very tenuous to like call federal offenses otherwise. Um, and it's, it's important to be careful about who you trust um and to practice good security culture i, I um I'm, i don't want to just like spout platitudes here but like well you know i think a lot uh, of our listeners might not because security culture is something that was really important when i was um sort of doing my first political things like in my teens and early 20s because that was during the the green scare and um there were a there was this like sort of influx of undercovers who were trying to bait, uh, especially young anarchists, into uh, doing something stupid. Like basically, and and you know you you still you saw that in uh, a little bit during the uprising too. Like uh, that guy in Colorado. I don't know if you read that story. This guy who like just basically took over mm-hmm. this Black Lives Matter chapter because he had been a an agent who like went to uh, Iraq or something, and he claimed to be like a YPG guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd say like, if looking at how these undercovers tend to act, they throw around a lot of money. They act like they're the toughest people. They act like if you're not as tough as them, you're worthless. And they try to talk you into doing something really violent. And they will make fun of you if you don't do it. And so, if someone shows up starting talking like that, that is someone that you you shouldn't assume necessarily that they're a government agent without evidence, but maybe a good person to avoid. Oh, there were like famous cases of like, you know, people that turned like Brandon Darby, who became an informant and um, then became a uh, Breitbart <laughs> uh, correspondent. And yeah, like Eric McDavid, I think, got done by um, we're all talking sort of green scare era people who got, um, yeah, entrapped, essentially. So I think it's a really good point. Yeah. But then it became it became one of those like phrases that got stopped being taken seriously enough because the content wasn't. And also because there are too many bravado insurrectionary anarchists. So people would be like, yeah, security culture, bro, security culture. Like you'd just be like meeting your friends for a drink and they'd be like, put your phones in the microwave. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> um, but actually, if you are doing something um, and you want to be careful, do be careful. Don't listen to my cynicism. No, the, I mean, the most important thing you can do to be careful is just, first of all, if you... Uh, you don't need to know about everything your comrades have done, especially if it's in public. You know, anything you put in public on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or whatever, uh, don't put it out there if you ex- if it could be, uh, unless you want to see it in, like, court used against you, Exhibit A, uh, something like that. Because um, even if you're just joking, that, that can come up. Because, uh, you know, a lot of what activists do, whether it be peaceful 
you know, nonviolent direct action, you know, a lockdown, something like that is going to be illegal. And you have to think really hard about how you're going to communicate before and after that. And I would say that's what security culture is. And it's I'll, I'll try to put a link in the, the show notes um, talking a little bit more about security culture because it, leftists are still very paranoid and they should be. But um, security culture is just a good way to assuage that paranoia. Like, to that point, the, my dovetailing piece of advice is just like, don't let fear get the better of you. Don't let paranoia drive all your decisions. You can think intentionally about what information actually needs to be secure and what you can share. Like we, Libby and I and our friends at various points were really paranoid about what our speech or our communications might mean for Richard's case, um, especially while it was being investigated, presumably. And we were too paranoid at times. And we're going on a podcast now because we've uh, we've self-corrected and we like recognize that it's important to talk about um, what to talk about our experiences and to like build community and to not let these repressive tactics um, repress us, <laughs> prevent us from like building a, a powerful movement and resilient communities. Yeah. They, they want um, us to, to hear the word terrorism and like run away uh, and like abandon who they're targeting and stuff like that. And thankfully you didn't do that. And you came out of it with a, um, you know, not a, Total victory. Richard is is going to prison, unfortunately, but um, much less time than uh, than he could have gotten, and that's and that's a that's a big win. Yeah, I was actually going to ask because I don't think it was mentioned to the listeners yet, but uh, yeah, just the discrepancy between what he was originally charged with, the number of years he could have faced, um, and actually what all the solidarity helped not be the case and what he actually is facing and I think the discrepancy is really like notable yeah yeah so the government so there were like three different levels so the probation office did a report um before the sentencing it's called the pre-sentence report um and they applied every single enhancement they could think of they were recommending like 232 months it was unreal um, and then the government recommended 84 months, which is a lot of time, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of time. And so the judge um, at the sentencing hearing ended up sentencing him to 32 months, which like he's our friend. We love him. We don't think anyone should be in a cage. So it's hard for us to accept that he's going to go to jail for that length of time or to prison for that length of time. But when you look at what the government wanted, I mean, he didn't even get half of what they wanted. It is like it's something that we are proud of. And it also is a real lesson in how community support helps. We are able to get so many letters for his sentencing hearing. We are able to get like tons of letters talking about Richard as a community member who's not a threat, who's like a loved and cherished member of the community. And we are able to pack the courtroom both times. And so I think a lot of times state repression like is designed to make you feel alienated and scared and impossible. But when you look at like when community turnout is able to happen, there are huge results. The judge couldn't help but notice the number of people who were there to support him. She referenced the number of letters. Like it clearly made an impact on her that he was like a beloved member of our community that impacted her decision. So even though it's very easy to feel powerless, I think it's important to notice that like when you can get community support and organize people to turn out, it really can make a difference in terms of like the number of years that people will go to prison. And that is really important work that we can all do together to support each other yeah two or three instead of 20 is um like we do feel like it's a victory um, yeah, good. and we're it's important to to uh highlight that because they're the government is obviously never going to admit that this was a, a huge l for them yeah um, like embarrassingly the other, yeah the other um i mean aside from the community support and stuff like he had a really kick-ass lawyer and um <laughs> who did a great job and um the, uh he found that lawyer because of a referral from um a lawyer who we got put in touch with from a friend who's a j20 defendant so like the, um the continuity of these struggles and um the uh like community that is built 
as a result of these repressive tactics um, actually makes us stronger. So don't uh, like don't let those tactics prevent you from from um, building that affinity and from having those networks and those relationships. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned it. It was a. An... He's got such good community to stick by him. Yeah, yeah. He's strong. He'll be fine. Pack the court. And you know now, even now that um, the trial is over, uh, I would encourage everyone listening to uh, to keep following um, your work and and when he's got an address to write him, let him know you heard the episode. Let him know just like you know, who you are and like what your life is like, I'm sure. Because when you're in prison, you know, getting those letters, I, I hear from everyone who's been inside, getting those letters is huge. And um, it doesn't have to be for Richard, obviously, just you can write to Jessica Reznicek. Uh, you, I'll, I'll put a link to her support group in the notes or, or just, you know, anyone, anyone you admire uh, that you've, you've heard about um, being locked up. And there's just, there's also just like black and pink and like other um, prisoner support groups that just, uh, post the address of inmates who uh, maybe they're not connected to anything political or in our circles, but just would love to hear from you. And this is like, I've got like two or three prisoners I write to uh, on occasion. And it's, you know, it's just like a very short thing you could do out of your week or out of your month that makes a world of difference to someone on the inside. So I always encourage that. Um, and I also want to say, you mentioned this is yeah. like kind of an L for the state. Uh, They've taken a lot of L's in these sort of prosecutions recently. Like um, I was just thinking about uh, thinking about Scott Warren, who was um, put on trial twice because he's part of No More Deaths, which is a group that just puts out water and uh, food for people crossing the border in Arizona. And they put him on trial twice for that during the Trump years, a very politicized prosecution. They lost both times. Everybody from J20, that was the counter inaugural protest in uh, 2017 against Trump, all of those people walked, like really serious charges. Um, and so hopefully everyone in Atlanta is going to walk too. But it is really scary and awful while that's in process. Right. And I think keeping in mind, like, especially when you're looking at charges that are so weak and so clearly uh, politically driven uh, from front to back, that, like, you know, you can't, you'll never walk around feeling comfortable that you're going to. Um, you know, see the charges dropped. Of course, I would never expect anyone to feel that way. You always mm -hmm. partly have to assume the worst. But while you're going through that lengthy process, as you were mentioning, Richard had to, and your community had to, knowing that, like, the idea of it being lengthy and resource draining and chilling is the point. So I think keeping that in mind, even though it won't completely allay fears of conviction, obviously. If you're listening uh, to this and you you have a friend, who is facing charges, right? Terrorism charges or federal charges uh, related to the summer of 2020 or w whatever else. Your friend's a defendant or your family member's a defendant and you are scared. We have published a bunch of resources, a bunch of the stuff that we um, prepared during this process, um, a little bit of our research on freerichardhunsinger.com. We have some anti-doxing or like doxing prevention resources, some know your rights resources about what to do if an investigator or a cop knocks on your door and wants to ask questions. By all means. Yeah, don't uh, try to do outsmart them. If they knock on your door asking questions, don't no, try to get clever. No, no. Do not talk to them. Get their yeah. information, uh, get it to a lawyer, but do not talk to them at all. Doesn't always work, but nobody talks, right. everybody walks was an old slogan of like Sea uh, Shepherd and uh, the environmentalist direct action campaign and uh, often, often true. Yeah, that's right. Nothing, absolutely nothing you say to an investigator can help. <laughs> yes. And even the smallest order SVU, like shut up. <laughs> yeah. It's not there for you. And I also always like to say when we talk about knowing your rights, if you've started talking, you can stop at any moment. So if they, you know, caught you surprised, you instinctively started answering questions, you can just take a moment, take a deep breath and be like, actually, I don't want to talk anymore. Because uh, I think a lot of times they're trying to get people surprised. So just know you can be quiet at any time. And every piece of information you deny an investigator is a huge victory for our movement. So mm -hmm. 
just out of like pure pettiness and spite, I enjoy it a lot outside of just like the larger <laughs> political struggle. Like you're making their job harder. And I think that's really beautiful. And making uh, your lawyer's job or your friend's lawyer's job uh, easier, uh, which helps too. Um, all right, I guess I, I just had one last thing I want to add. We can talk about it or um, I know a couple of you have to go. Um, but this is not just, you know, the America's war on terror. This is a international phenomenon like in Italy right now. There's um, a case around an anarchist prisoner named Alfredo Caspito, uh, who's been in, in prison, I think, for quite a while and um, he's now he's been on hunger strike for about 150 days now because he's being held in this uh, 41 beasts maximum security prison that's usually for like uh, like mafia bosses like a you know his his uh what, what's the U.S. term for it like communications management or something and so there's been protests in support of his hunger strike saying to move him out of this prison or like get rid of this this kind of maximum security prison in Italy. And um, the new president, Giorgio Maloney, is uh, really using this issue to so, just to, to, to uh, kind of consolidate state power. And she's now threatening to bring back this street protest terrorism law, which like harkens back to the days of the Red Brigade and the years of lead. Um, and we saw something similar in France, you know, like with some of the, the riots and strikes, you know, there was this state of emergency that was used to track activists under the guise of preventing terrorism after the uh, the Bataclan nightclub shooting. So um, this kind of uh, repression, I, it's, I think it's going to be constant, but I think it's important to remember that, you know, what people on our side are doing uh, is not terrorism, you know, trying to defend a forest, um, uh, opposing the carceral state, uh, you know, if anything is terrorism, it's not that. And I think we're on the side of the people for the most part. You know, not everything uh, is, is like, a, you know, I, I guess like prison abolition might not be the most popular concept, but like um, compared to, let's say, you know, Dylan Roof or like uh, James Fields or, you or know, like living on an unlivable planet. Uh huh. Yeah, like th those people are not going to be charged with terrorism. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying because we probably shouldn't be using the word terrorism because of like how politically useful it is for the state. But if you compare what we believe and what we want and what we do to them, uh, you know, we are not terrorists. Yeah, completely. I also think it's worthwhile just to like um, because the state uses it because it can be used without much like uh, concrete meaning, except like naming ideological enemies. Um, you know, I think it's, we can also, we don't need to use that. Like, I think you're also totally right, Andy, but I just think we can also, you know, we can call, we can call people fascists. We can call them eliminationists. We can actually describe what they do and why it's uh, uh, an act of violence. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, speaking about, like phrasing things that way, I think, uh, you know, also clarifies our position in relation to them. Yeah, it was a good practice. For sure. Yeah. Um, any closing thoughts from uh, Libby or Sam? Don't talk to cops um, would be our always closing advice. And practice with your friends, your family, your roommates on what to do if somebody knocks on your door to ask questions about what your friend is doing. Donate to Atlanta Solidarity Fund. Hell yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. And I want to congratulate Natasha for not mentioning Wittgenstein the entire episode. I did not know you had oh, it in Shall we talk about Wittgenstein? Is that what you would like? Thanks for mentioning that. Let's talk about it. Uh, for another hour. Let's do a full another episode on that. I need to watch TV and sleep. No, I, but because I'm saving my Wittgenstein for the No Doubt Wittgenstein episode, you're going to invite me to do, obviously. To mm -hmm. time. Silence. Um, <laughs> oh, no, we'll have you on for that. I'm, I'm saving it for later. Because mm. I know you're, you're, you're writing a book on Wittgenstein and it's going to get into some juicy details about his personal life. It's all going to be about yeah, his sordid affairs. It's a sex memoir. It's a sex memoir. <laughs> Um, it is not. <laughs> it will be, in fact, very boring. Unlike the book you're writing, which is going to be about. <laughs> well, I can't talk about that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah, you can. <laughs> okay. Wait, is All that right. a secret? 
A little tit for tat. All right. Thanks a lot for being here, Natasha and Libby and Sam. And free Richard. Free everyone in Atlanta. Yeah. Gosh, I do want to really Thanks so much. It's, it's great to talk with you.